0: greetings and welcome to talking trek to you a podcast where a newbie and an expert boldly go through star trek episode by episode my name is kev koser and i'm here with my co-host jg mcquarrie say hi jg
1: hello kev how are you doing this week
0: well, I thought I needed a pill to become a great podcaster, but it turns out the confidence was was within me all along.
1: Uh, well, I'm very pleased to hear that you're you're confident and and you have that self belief that we can power through this episode. Uh, this week we are going to be dealing with muds women. This is the first episode of the show that we've really come across that's been a a straight up comedy. Is it? That- really the way to describe this well we'll see but we are not facing it alone we have our guest with us this week so say hello Michael Chow.
2: hi I'm Michael Chow. thanks for having me on
1: it's an absolute pleasure how are you doing
2: I'm doing well how about you all
1: ah fantastic and very much looking forward to getting stuck into the episode now before we uh before we start things off we usually cover um our guest's history with the show so um what's your what's your history
2: with Star Trek uh I mean like to be honest, like not a whole lot. Like I've definitely uh I like watched episodes as a kid, but like I've always been more of a Star Wars person, uh, even though I'm like a little more cynical about the newer stuff. But I've always liked uh I like space adventures. Like I I like the concept of Star Trek a lot. Uh, I think I've like mostly probably seen like the like JJ stuff, which like as I know is like not and it's probably like considered uh very uh blasphemous to say that. But like I <laughs> I like the first and third one a lot. I'm not a fan of like Into Darkness.
0: And nobody is. That's that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. I mean, the JJ 2009 movie was also, as we talked about in this first episode of this podcast, my introduction as well. And I went <laughs> basically then on forward. So yeah. yeah, it's a. I don't think it's atypical in this day and age either. You know. Yeah. You start I've definitely that.
2: seen a, Oh, I've also seen a Wrath of Khan, which like I think is like a great movie. Oh, for sure. But otherwise, I'm like not super acquainted.
1: Good. Well, that that. Has the advantage that it means that you're coming to it with a a degree of freshness which those of us who have been following this show for let's be honest half a century at this point um might have, uh, have difficulty uh you know reaching the same the same level of clarity over these episodes but uh fantastic thank you very much it's lovely to have you along and um yeah kev would you care to give us our episode summary
0: of course mud's woman starts with the enterprise pursuing an unregistered cargo spaceship and when the ship and the Enterprise start breaking down, they're able to uh, sort of get the crew of that on board. That involves a certain, oh, shoot, what's the really awful fake name? he
2: can... Oh, Leo, uh, Captain Leo, like Walsh.
0: Yes, yeah, like Cap- uh, Captain Leo Walsh in the, who's giving the most outrageous Irish accent I've ever heard. <laughs> also his three beautiful women who immediately catch the lure of the crew. Um, Leo Walsh is quickly revealed to be uh, Harry Mudd, a sort of small-time criminal in the galaxy. And he is, uh, well, ferrying these women is the nicest way to put it, to be um, essentially space mail-order brides for a colony. (laughs) when When the Enterprise sets down on a mining planet to refuel, Mudd realizes he can sell the woman to the miners instead. And uh use the riches from the uh crim- the crystals to sort of buy the enterprise out from under them. That sort of go- goes awry uh when one of the women escapes into the snow, like not wanting to do the deal and is rescued by one of the miners. Oh, the other sort of thing we discover is the women are uh I thought there was gonna be more tea like robots or aliens in disguise or something, but really they're just older women <laughs> who, who look a little uh frumpy by 60s standards and they take this venus pill to help them seem youthful and beautiful um basically the miner who rescues the woman eve discovers this uh he's initially repulsed but then kirk arrives and gives eva placebo she looks beautiful again and kirk says the confidence within you all along and then she's sold off to be a wife to him <laughs> in exchange for her crystals <laughs> for the enterprise and it's very uncomfortable and that's how <laughs> the episode ends at uh, with Kirk, also with kirk taking mud to trial
1: fantastic thank you very much Yes, there's there's a lot to cover in
0: this episode. It's fair
1: to say, um, and um, if there's anything that's going to be talked about, I imagine um, social issues from the 1960s may be fairly high up yeah. on the list. But um, before we get into all that, and before we start to uh, break it down, uh, Michael, how did how did you find this episode?
2: Uh, I think it's a really funny episode. I think like every TV show has should have like one episode where like the whole cast is just like criminally horny. Uh, I, I I liked the character of like a with a hairy mud uh apparently he's like a reoccurring character who's just like it's mm-hmm. like irish space pimp which is like very funny
0: yeah it's he's great i think the only other time he's really shown up in star trek outside of the original series is uh, when rain wilson played him in discovery oh he, really you know, like, yeah for an episode or two and he was really good it was like hmm. some of the few like fun episodes of discovery hmm. But yeah, I mean, obviously, I only know I know that appearance, of course, and then I know he shows up at least once more in the original series. Obviously, I haven't seen that, but yeah, he's he's a very fun character from what I've seen. There is
1: one episode of the animated show that he turns up. Oh, yeah. really? I, I don't know how our commitment to Star Trek is going to go by the time we get towards the end of. Uh, so he three must be like a favorite, favorite right? Um, yeah. Although as the, um, as the alleged expert on 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 this show, I don't know. I've never really, I've never really cared for Harry Mudd that mm. much. Um, I have to say though, one thing I should make clear: whilst I'm not sure if this is true of the classic show, but it's certainly true of both Next Generation and Voyager. Um, Harry Mudd's outrageous Irish accent is not the worst Irish accent that Star Trek will ever produce. So yeah. I just want to give you a fair warning: if we ever do move forward with this into into other other branches of the franchise, like this, is not the worst Irish accent, and it is bad.
2: Is Roddenberry just like not a fan of the Irish? Is that the deal?
1: <laughs> um, I think this
2: episode makes
1: very clear what Gene Roddenberry is a fan of. <laughs> mm.
0: Yeah. I, I guess that that's almost such a great transition point. Uh maybe we just give our like JG Yumi or a quick like uh how much we liked it as well. And I think yeah, it's it's an episode where the best way to describe it is uh I found the sexism very laughable for most of it and then very sad at the end. <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's I mean it is just kinda funny. Like like a Chow said, it's where it's like everyone's kind of a horny monster this episode, but it's just like the comedic beats of Scotty going, I, and uh, McCoy going, that's right, Scotty, or I have the quote written down. But yeah, it's just that, uh, amen to that, Scotty, even better. Just, I mean, that hits. It's like, yeah, this is goofy. I see the wavelength it's going for. It's not, it makes me feel uncomfortable, but maybe in an intentional way. And then just the way it just totally throws the agency's woman out the window at the end is really shocking, especially because it seems to be giving Eve more agency than you would expect at first. Uh, Jade, do you want to give your quick thumbnail opinion before we get into all of that?
1: I mean, I think I'm more or less on the same page with you. Like, you know, there, it, it's always difficult judging an episode like this by sort of contemporary moral standards or, or whatever, because of course it's, it's a product of its time. And, the surprising, I suppose, thing about the episode is, like you say, how how much agency Eve eventually has, and the fact that one of these—I um, mean, we can just say prostitutes, right? Because that's that's yeah, yeah. exactly oh, sex workers, how. I would yeah. Say, but okay. Yeah. So, yeah sure. Uh, but that's exactly how the episode treats them. You know, they are they are there to be um, bought and sold for for what they are, not who they are. And, you know, it it's it's really leaning heavily on like the western roots of Star Trek you mm. know there's there's no question oh, that West- this is this is just a western but it's got a spaceship instead of like a train coming into town or or whatever you know uh it's it's such a such a Western cliche, like if it was, uh, you know, like the local saloon bar or Mm -hmm. at the OK Corral, you know, it would make no meaningful difference to this story.
2: Well, mine Um, is even like kind of dressed up like a cowboy.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. Even the costuming kind of leans into that. They're like, they're like these miners. I mean, if it it was, you know, like an old 69er who had had an accident down the pits, you know, (laughs) it, it would just, it would basically function in exactly the same way. And so, you know, those characters, the female characters in this kind of function in the way that they would do in a western and i think that's what produces the weird tension here because the show kind of tries to be a bit progressive by giving eve a bit of agency a little bit for some of the episode but like the the roots of the episode are based in western where women were just you know you know yeah prostitutes or sex workers at the the local saloon bar and that tension is unresolved i think it would say by the time we get to the end of the episode where a woman is literally just sold for like a bunch of crystals if it was if it was gold or whatever or diamonds that they were mining which she's like happy about West, it too be, oh yeah thrilled <laughs> yeah, yeah. she wouldn't want to be stuck with that like, guy? they're like
2: complaining um, earlier they're like oh there's like no woman for us to be or so there's no man for us to be like sold off
1: to <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, so, um, yeah, so, I mean, l- long story short, TLDR, um, yeah, like, it's kind of fun in a sort of 60s mores kind of way, right up until the moment it isn't.
0: Yeah, I I think just sort of digging into that, yeah, it just doesn't quite jive with the whole future setting. I mean, we've seen Uhura, I mean, human and Rand, its own conversation that we thankfully mostly get to avoid this episode, but, like, we see women in positions of power in Starfleet, hmm so it's just it does kind of bump against it that it's but oh but these women they can only find uh, love through marriage i mean not even to bring future shows into it where obviously women who exist at the same theoretical canon time as the show are like leading ships or whatever Mm -hmm. even just taking the episode and the show on its own merits like we even see uhura at the calm. she might be the only Female Starfleet officer, we see elsewhere in the episode. She, but has like doesn't, know, like,
2: she doesn't get to do anything in the episode, though. That's kind of interesting. I right. didn't even think about
0: that. Yeah. I mean, that's. She's had moments here and there in these first six, and I understand she's going to get more. Yeah. But yeah, she is very much uh, window dressing here, uh, unfortunately. And it's just. Yeah, it just means that the whole sort of argument around, well, I need to find this man or else what else do I have in life just kind of. It just doesn't transpose itself so out of the sci-fi setting. I think that's where the real bump happens. It's an interesting story on its own terms, and you could deal with, like... I think it needs the historical context of this is the tragedy of the time. There is no other option for Eve or the other two mm-hmm. to really click. Instead, it just kind of bumps as weird, where, you know, it's still fun until it isn't. That's basically what it is.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things that the story, I think, struggles to articulate is that kind of future setting and that's just really, I think, a function of the fact that this is a very early episode. So, you know, we have these uh, lithium miners who are, are stuck on this planet in the middle of nowhere. They, you know, apparently don't really have any contact with the outside world. They're dependent on this kind of, you know, what, what would literally be like, a, you know, like a supply wagon in an old Western or whatever, you know, they're dependent on that kind of support. And there's no real sense, I think, that there's a, a coherent approach to how the future is set up. Mm. It's all it's all being done kind of in a wing and a prayer. And that's fine. You know, these details create over time and they, they build up as we get more and more episodes. But I think there's a real sense that that kind of like, I, I mean, I don't think that the original series of Star Trek is utopian in any meaningful sense. Mm. But, you know, but the idea of that kind of, very progressively forward looking society isn't it's not shot through the series in the same way that that it's going to be moving forward even even future episodes in the first season of of star trek will have that kind of uh much more let's say i don't like the word utopian here but maybe idealistic is a better word for it Mm -hmm. you know that ideal idealism and and here it's 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 just the old west with spaceships, and and that does damage the episode because yeah, like you said, Kev, like we need some articulation. Why are these women so desperate? What what is it about their situation? The fact that they're in their their forties, because that doesn't seem like a good enough hook to hang that off. You know, no. uh, there's mm-hmm. just no yeah, we get no background detail on them at all, and the episode seems to think that it wants them to be treated you know, as more than just objects and then just treats them as objects. Like they have literally no backstory. Their only backstory is Harry Mudd is trying to sell them. That's it. So, yeah, it's a weird, it's another weird kind of tension in the episode that they just, you know, we we shouldn't just think of these women as uh, objects to be lusted over. And the whole, you know, you, you know, you didn't need the feather to fly, Dumbo kind of yeah. moral of the story. Is kind of it just kind of dissolves because that's the only way the episode can treat them is as, as you know these kind of walking beauties.
2: And it's like Shannon or it's like Kirk that has to like teach them that lesson, which is like very funny.
1: <laughs> there, there is an irony in that, right?
2: Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. I think the pills are like a great uh, thing to sort of dig into because I don't know. It's definitely going for that sort of more like you said of like you don't need pills. It's I mean you could uncharitably read it possibly still correctly read it as roddenberry and uh the writer stephen candle saying oh women don't need makeup on you know they're more beautiful (laughs) than natural beauty
2: yeah that's such a like that's such a male feminist thing (laughs) like baby you're still beautiful
0: (laughs) yeah exactly um so it's it's just very odd that like yeah that just winds up sort of being what's all sort of fine an end episode especially because the person even episode does not seem like a nice guy their whole argument no. of, like the domestic drama about cooking yeah <laughs> I mean, it was funny in the moment but i don't want that to be the rest of her life
2: <laughs> it is probably like a reaction to like the diet pills at the time right like the word yeah. like women were basically just taking like straight up meth
1: yeah pretty much and well and the other thing about it is is that it kind of like the like, on the one hand, there's the idea that like the Venus pills are this. There, that's the moral of the story is that you don't, you know, self belief is more important than than inner looks. That's what the story is trying to sell. But mm. actually, it it means that Harry Harry Mud isn't just a pimp; he's a drug dealer as well. And <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not really sure that the episode understands that's what it said. No, because he's like kind
2: of not the bad guy of the episode at all.
1: Well, he's not played as the bad guy, but that, yeah. but that's kind of like if you look at it, that's absolutely what he is. He's yeah, a oh yeah, he's a pimp and a drug dealer. And uh, particularly, yeah. there's that, that scene where they take the Venus pills on the Enterprise for the first time. Like the three um, women who are acting the role really play it like they're taking a hit of something. You know, mm. they really play it like It's a drug that they're consuming. Yeah, it's not. It's not just that it makes them beautiful, but they need their fix, and that really does kind of. Yeah, it's played like an addiction, you're right. Exactly, exactly. And it's just a weird, it's a weird beat. Because again, yeah, lovable old rogue, Harry Mudd. (laughs) He's at it. Oh, him and his Mary James and all the rest of it. What with him selling off these women to random strangers and forcing them to take drugs they don't particularly need or want. You know, it's just, it's a weird thing. And I don't think the writing at all understands that tension
2: when like uh when rain wilson comes back as him later like how is that played is he like played as like a, a more a, i'm sure i'm assuming it's probably still like funny but is he like more of like a scoundrel
0: yeah i it's he i try <clears throat> to remember because i watched this the first time and only time years ago but it's he's like i don't know kind of like a funny but han solo-ish type oh, like, okay he's like like not cool though like han solo i don't sure. know he's just like just in that like sort of, he's not as swishy as his performance. Is the best way. I can... <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> sure, sure.
1: It's tedious fan service. Let's be honest. That's all Harry yeah. Mudd coming back was in Discovery. Sorry, Discovery fans, but uh, that's that's genuinely all it was.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I did really like his episodes as episodes, but you're right. There was no reason for it to be that character.
2: But so they don't like don't lean into being like a space scumbag at all
0: no they do they do okay sure, sure. he's like yeah he's he serves the same role he's like bringing on dangerous stuff that they shouldn't be in contact with or he's messing with them in some way accidentally mm-hmm. in, or intentionally but yeah he's it's it's the same kind of character i think yeah. wilson's performance is pretty fun yeah but yeah i it, it definitely is not like oh this is so integral to the story we had to bring him back i see what jg is saying for sure
1: uh, also, a lot less sexy trombones and saxophones. And... Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> Those scenes started... where they're walking
1: down the corridor and you get the big wah ba you know?
2: That's yeah, a big that's... downgrade for Discovery. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you know, it was only lacking, like, the stripper to, to really complete that illusion of, of, of you know, objectifying those those women it's uh, yeah that is another thing like this, the way the soundtrack works on this episode is really you know again it, it makes it hard to read this episode as anything f- even faintly progressive i think it's fair you to know,
2: say no i mean like half the episode is them just like leering at the women
0: yeah it's i think back to that scene where they're taking the pills i mean just this is just something i found is that it's very clear that two of them have old age makeup on eve and the uh the brunette two whose name mm-hmm. i can't remember but then the other blonde is just like her hair is messed up they didn't have the budget <laughs> for a third set of old age makeup
2: i mean they're all just like pretty ladies like they just change yeah, the lighting it, a little bit and then they add some makeup and that's kind of it yeah it's and like the pills just help you find your angle i guess
0: <laughs> yeah and i think that's what star trek has done really well that we've discovered it's just like Doing a lot with a little. I mean, I guess that's not a new discovery at all. (laughs) That's what people have been saying the whole time. That's good filmmaking. Yeah, exactly. I think the lighting in that scene is really good. The editing and, like, rhythm and score. I mean, it feels kind of proto-Lynchian, dare I say. It's just, like, very unnerving and strange. And, no i think the show yeah. like
2: looks fantastic like i i love yeah. those like technicolor like big like uh studio sets right
0: and it knows how to get like a little strange like that when it wants to sort of increase tension in that way i think it uses really uses a visual language that's not afraid to like you know get weird with and mm-hmm. when it when a scene is calls for that kind of weirdness um, i mean if we're talking like props and such i love I always love a snowstorm that's really much just, like, a bestest-laden confetti for a fan. Yeah, they should check in with those women years later. (laughs) Oh, no. I mean, I agree. I mean, I think
1: Harvey Hart, who directed this episode, does do a good job with very, very limited resources. I mean, two-thirds of the episode is on the Enterprise, and Mm. then he's got, what, like, one or maybe two rooms on the planet? Like, there's the minor set, and then there's, like, the... well town hall let's be honest um and that's that's pretty much you know that's pretty much it so it, it's tough to get a lot of really great dynamism out of, out of those sets but i think he does a really good job um and you know for 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 all that that oddity i mean the whole thing with the makeup and the or the old age makeup i should say in that is i i quite like the fact that the the, I presume it's Harvey Hart, uh, the director, who would be responsible for this. But I like the fact that they don't try and do a crossfade between like the the sort of older version and the younger version. With the it's all kind of like oh well we turn her back and and, and then turn around and, oh ta da she's young again, um which is really cheap of course it is, um but I think it's kind of almost more effective than trying to go for a special effect because we saw we saw that kind of crossfade special effect when we were talking about um uh the mantrap um a few episodes ago um and you know it, it it works well enough for what it is but it it's just it's nice that it it's not resorting to a gimmick it will it's allowing the storytelling to function in a way which isn't being distracted from by by a ropey special effect basically
0: yeah um I think I wanna circle back to the point we made about Mud not necessarily being the villain. I think he definitely is the villain, maybe in the original script, and it just comes across less because uh, Roger C. Carmel's performance is just what it is. Yeah. But I mean he talks about how he wants to take over the enterprise. Yeah. He's I mean, the women do not like the fate they're in. I at mm-hmm. least Eve certainly vocally doesn't. It's just I think it's just sort of he almost doesn't come across as a villain because well a he's much less even at this point in the show he's much less minor much more minor scale than yeah. other threats they've faced the threat is more definitely the engine ring of power than anything mud's up to i gonna say like
2: it's very similar to the way that like tuco's introduced in like the good and bad and the ugly where they like list out like yeah. all of his
0: crimes but
2: like ah, uh, he's like too playful to like really hate
0: yeah exactly and that's the thing is like he has all these small time stuff and he's doing schemes against them but the fact that the climax episode doesn't really rest on him, I think sort of deflects attention away from him, and Carmel's performance is very fun. It almost kind of undercuts the episode when your guy who's doing objectively monstrous things. You're, I mean, you both are right on this point. He just like isn't depicted as a monster. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a better, I, I presume better, maybe not version of this episode, where they actually lean into Mud being a much more awful dude that Kirk has the fist fight at the end. That maybe, like, actually I think, I think some Kirk would win that on. one. Well, yeah, <laughs> but. Even I could win that one. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. It's just. I think it undercuts itself by having Mud be so playful, as fun as the performance is. Mm hmm. I think one of the interesting
1: things about that as well is the fact that um, a lot of Westerns in the sort of 50s and 60s, and so you're talking about maybe uh, shows like Rawhide to a certain uh, extent, Um a lot of those kind of sort of fairly early, well, even Wagon Train, I suppose, which, you know, Star Trek is meant to be Wagon Train to the stars. Some of them had surprisingly... Uh, nuanced takes on on morality one of the things about the western as a genre i'm I'm not a big western fan um but i'm disturbingly over knowledgeable when it comes to television (laughs) um but one of the things that's interesting about kind of the western genre is that because there were so many of them which were all fairly interchangeable some of them, in order to be able to distinguish themselves from the pack, started to develop a much more sort of sophisticated take on morality. So it wasn't just the lazy kind of um, John Wayne cliches of, you know, you know, two-fisted kind of action man or whatever. Um, and, you know, there was a real attempt to develop um, interesting characters, conflicted moral um you know scripting, yeah. which yeah. dug into the idea that, for example, the the women that worked in the saloon bar, for example, mm. weren't just pieces of meat for men to ogle, but they had their own interior lives. Maybe they escaped an abusive situation, or maybe they were running from, you know, um, troublesome parents or whatever it was. But there were, but it was just it was a more sophisticated uh, sort of take on it. Right. But it, but it was one which was quite limited to um television westerns it's not so i mean some of it bleeds through there are obviously uh westerns which which have a more developed sense of morality it's like but applicable,
2: that, like a lot of like uh like italian westerns
1: yeah absolutely yeah spaghetti mm-hmm. westerns definitely leaned into that and as the yeah. 60s and 70s kind of wore on that kind of that sort of almost anti-Western came in, but but on TV in this in the, in the late fifties and sixties, that morality developed. What's interesting about Mud's women, and I swear to God, there's a point in this at some at some stage, <laughs> um, is that it. it completely bypasses that this is mm. just presented as like you, you, like your typical kind of western uh scenario and so when you have um a character like eve and i also i have to give karen Steele a shout out yes. as her performances she's good so actor. she's so good in this and she's got a metric ton of like just the like including quite a few westerns but uh you know metric ton of um like TV roles that she just hammered away on, like a really great kind of dependable character actor so when she's given that extra dimension, it feels like it's leaning into that tradition of the Western where these TV shows had a more developed sense of of, of morality and then then that's not what we end up with at the end of the episode and it's, it's
0: very kind of, it's very deflating
2: The Western angle is like something I've never really thought of with Star Trek but that's like a really interesting connection
0: yeah, it's, it's what was the biggest thing at the time, and I For think sure. it's, I mean, like, Wagon Train to the Stars, like I said, J.G., that's how it was pitched. Um, I mean,
2: like, Westerns are about, like, America, like, they're about the political situation, like, America's in, so, right. like, makes a lot of sense that, like, Roddenberry would take that connective tissue to make, like, his own political series. Absolutely, and I think one of the things
1: about it as well is, is that, that, um, that pattern of uh, America analyzing itself through the Western is absolutely something which is Utterly ingrained within Star Trek. Um, we'll get into this more as we go through the series, but the idea that um Star Trek represents a kind of American colonial uh, expansion mm-hmm. that it never got to experience in the real world, but is able to live out sort of through the fantasy of something like Star Trek.
2: Especially is a that, really... during like the sixties, like when like Vietnam is like about to happen.
1: Well, exactly, and that that's kind of the thing because a a lot of that kind of idealism and that kind of um that sort of huge sense of confidence that America had coming off the back of the fifties. Um, you know, that was kind of the prevalent, um, cultural, uh, you know, uh, zeitgeist, I suppose, Uh, you know, that, that huge confidence. And then you get, uh, something like Star Trek, which is is kind of repeating the patterns that we see in history, patterns of colonialization, patterns of countries which expand, mm-hmm. um, you know, but trying to do it for more magnanimous reasons than, say, the British Empire or, sure. uh, you know, Second World War, of course, still looms very, very large in everybody's uh everybody's conscience Mm -hmm. so there's 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 kind of a whole discussion around that that pattern of of star trek um but when we see because we're so early on in the series at this point Mm -hmm. um we're we're not there yet so we see star trek starting to repeat at this point forms which are familiar um Mm. but which it will then go on to greatly expand upon so that's 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 something that that will will definitely be a feature of the series going forward
2: Yeah, like, as I understand, like, Star Trek is, like, at least becomes, like, a more, like, anthropological series, right? Where, like, oh, Mm -hmm. we're, like, learning things about different cultures, and, like, that's the mission of the Enterprise.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, I mean, we have the, obviously, we have the voiceover at this point, so we have the, you know, uh, you know, seek out new life and new civilizations. We haven't actually done very much of that yet. Sure. <laughs> uh, we've, done, we've done worryingly little. Um, and you know, that's definitely not the remit of this episode. No strange new worlds, no new life, no yeah. new <laughs> boldly going very slowly because we've run out of space pit. They met
2: one space um, pimp and they learned like almost nothing from it. <laughs>
1: exactly. Um, but it will be something that 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 the show develops going forward, you know. Uh, and, and so many of the kind of the like the, the the totems of Star Trek are not in place yet, you know, we don't have the Prime Directive that hasn't been mentioned yet. You know, mm-hmm. we haven't we haven't met the Klingons yet. We haven't met the Romulans, right? So the you know that, that and that's fine. But it's that's also one of the reasons that these early episodes are are kind of really interesting because you can see the building blocks of such, you know yeah, totemic parts of kind of popular culture being mm-hmm. put in place. Just happens this time it's about drug-dealing pimp.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. It's it is interesting. I mean, I almost feel bad a little bit now, uh, Michael, that this is like the first episode, one of the first original series episodes you're seeing because it's like everyone, even Kirk, it feels like is sort of backgrounded here. Uh, mm. Spock gets like one scene, McCoy gets one scene, and he's just yeah. stammering over himself. Well, spots
2: one uh, thing is like, oh wow, uh, I guess men get horny sometimes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And don't don't bother using your tricks on him, ladies. He's uh, weird. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's all these dynamics are just not really present in this episode. It turns it itself over to the guest stars in the big way. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's very. It just feels very typical, even from what we have seen, which not exploring new locations, mostly just doing supply drops and like check-ins on people but still uh, like what has made this original episode, the first five we've watched work is those intercast dynamics between Kirk and Spock, of course, Kirk and McCoy, um, Sulu and Uhura sort of chiming in with what their deal is. And yeah, I think that is what, if anything, is really lacking from this. There's no part where Spock comes into Kirk and it's like, uh, why can't humans control their hormones or whatever? And they have a debate about that. It's, it really, I think, deflates this episode quite a bit.
1: There is one lovely Spock moment uh, when the when Kirk convenes the hearing against Harry Mudd, and um, they're sitting Spock sitting by the computer, and uh, I think uh, I think it's Kirk that asks him to uh, reveal his name or state his name for the record, um, and he 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 gives the the Leo pseudonym, and the computer says nope, and and Spock <laughs> Spock just turns to him and goes. <sighs> <Your laughs> real name. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not what we think of as our Vulcan, but it's a lovely moment that Nimoy plays just <laughs> so well. Just that utter frustration with these stupid, insert explicit here, humans. Just tell me your
2: damn name already. <laughs> I was gonna say, like, I feel like there's like a big influence on like Futurama in this episode, especially like the sex dynamics.
0: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, you mentioned the Vietnam War earlier. Uh, I think, like, we had just, like, the year before started engaging in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. The U.S., that is. Um, I only meant to speak for the two of us here. Sorry, James. (laughs) Not we. Um, (laughs) um, So I think this really is a show really trapped in a post-World War II moray, like, with its gender politics, which I guess... The reason the futurama thing reminded me of it is that's kind of what futurama is going for as well. Obviously, yeah. the show very much, very much set in the turn of the twenty first century, sure, and all that politics. But I think it's also trying to draft off of a little bit of like those, like men be like this, women be like this, yeah, uh, bending robots be like this uh, kind of humor, <laughs> yeah, and in a more ironic and lighter touch way. That's like it's like satirizing it exactly, yeah. But yeah, I think there is something to be said about how Star Trek in its original form is kind of stuck in this very uh, Kennedy-esque America Mm -hmm. and uh, even, even Roosevelt-esque America that's about to really go under a seismic shift.
2: Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting time capsule in that way.
0: Well, it really is. And it's, it's going to be interesting sort of going through the episode, especially
1: um, uh, with you Kev, because I know obviously you're, you're, you're coming to this fresh, um and the way that some of that idealism will be built in i was talking about kind of world building earlier on and the way that we don't have this perfectly constructed sort of future society yet um but it kind of cuts in both directions so on the one hand we will end up with a society um and world building within the star trek universe which which you know is reaching for that utopianism reaching for that idealism but on another hand because contemporary politics are becoming worse and worse and and you know we also have the whole uh race issue which is going to come up and things like let that be your last battlefield and and the civil rights movement and all that kind of stuff um there are things which also very directly cut against it and star trek is pretty um uh, i mean those cuts are um they're pretty hard so it's going to be interesting to to see where that goes but with this episode we have um None of that, <laughs> just, which is which is going to limit this uh this uh, sentence somewhat. But it but that that way that the show develops and that way it finds uh, a means of coming to terms with both its own uh, sort of idealism and the way that contemporary politics is is functioning is kind of one of the most fascinating things about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think I really admire about how Star Trek really reflects the era. It's like. Created and it really should. That's when it works the best. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, next generation—the little I've seen—it does feel very Clinton in the way this feels very Kennedy. Mm. Um, Discovery leans into sort of war on terror stuff, and then once that sort of once it sort of rejects that premise and to its like big time jump starts leaning into sort of more like optimism area, which and Strange New Worlds kind of does that sort of more bright and sunny. Uh, we like escapism that sort of is in the vogue right now much better. Um, I like, I think you really need that to be Star Trek, even though it is a future, it's a future that reflects where we're living now.
2: Yeah. I think that, I mean, that's it's like that's part of the genre. Like, it's a, them trying to deal with like heady concepts, but through like this genre lens.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think the Futurama thing is, is kind of an interesting lens for, for the original series to be seen through as well, because I mean, what I think is really kind of fascinating, and this is slightly off topic for the episode, but oh well, never mind, is um, <laughs> um, it, it, the idea that um, I think, obviously there's there's one very specific episode of Futurama that deals with Star Trek. Uh, My um, introduction to Star Trek, as mentioned previously. There, <laughs> in, 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 indeed. But... Sort of putting that one episode to one side. And I, I, have a, I have a bias here. I'm a massive Futurama fan. Indeed, in the real world, Bender is my nickname. But we'll gloss yeah. over that for the time being. Um, but it, it's kind of working on a a sort of folk memory of what Star Trek is. So a lot of what I think influences a show like Futurama, and Futurama is by by no means the only one, uh, but I think what influences it is that kind of, that sort of folk memory of, of, of like watching... Uh, reruns on a, you know, some cable channel on a Sunday morning when you've got a hangover, or like, you know, maybe a, maybe some midweek evening with your dad, or mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, it, it, it builds on those kind of folk memories. And the, one of the reasons that Star Trek is so good at that, and such a sort of pillar of of kind of contemporary popular culture, I think is because it's got a gravity to it that is greatly in excess of all its individual components and one of the things that I, one of the reasons I say that is because one of the odd things about this episode is the way I think that Kirk has written because if you have a crew, a horny crew who are horny for <laughs> horny women like the one person you would expect to be at the forefront of that horniness surely is Kirk but <laughs> they play against it like Kirk is the one person who basically keeps a level head, and it's not even like, oh, I'm struggling against it in that William Shatner kind of <laughs> way. It's like, like, like Kirk just cannot put up with this. Nonsense
2: and just, <laughs> uh, sorry, I had to stop myself yep. from swearing. Is just, you know, know. <laughs> you, like, you know Bones is like the say. uncontrollably horny character in this episode, which is really exactly. funny. but
1: it's but but it cuts against And Shatner, to be to his credit, is really good in this episode. And I really like actor. the fact he underplays it, like, yeah. nobody thinks William Shatner underplaying, <laughs> but, he, but he does in this episode, and, mm-hmm. and it's little moments like that that I think. Like that, yeah, that folk memory of Star Trek kind of plays into, but also slightly plays against because Mm -hmm. that's why this show is so great because it doesn't just go for the thing you expect it to be. Yeah, Kirk can be underplayed here, and he is, and it's great to see him do that. Like, he just, he just, like that line spot gets at the end about, you know, a most annoying episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but like, I kind of almost wish Kirk had that line because he just doesn't need this stuff and he is not going to fall for the leggy blonde or for the, the brunette with the beehive or we've already seen so many
2: other women and like a, a bunch of green women across the universe exactly like, what's, what's another
1: one to what's another one to add to the collection but I, just, I really love the fact that they just don't play kirk the way that you think they're going to and Shatner yeah that's a really good so point great at playing that
0: yeah i mean this the Shatner corner is pretty much a regular feature on this podcast. <laughs> and I, what I love about Shatner underplaying is he still underplays it in such a very obvious and theatrical way. And sure. <laughs> it sounds contradictory. But like you said, even when he's, when he's soft-spoken, he's like the softest voice you've heard. His eyes are moving in like a very visible way. His facial expression is yeah. like, you see the movements of that. You see the way he shifts his posture. I, it just works so well.
2: That's just like good TV acting, though. Like Shatner's yeah. a fantastic TV actor i think I and that's remember, where you have to
1: stop that sentence yeah <laughs> stop
0: i can't remember which of um our friends on twitter said this but it was definitely a great point where like the best star trek captains are the ones who you know they don't literally have stage experience feel mm. like they're acting as if they're on a stage oh sure like i mean certainly that's these... the deal with uh uh, yeah. uh patrick stewart oh, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I can't speak to, I mean, I barely know Avery Brooks. I can't speak to Kate Mulgrew's experience at all. I don't Mm. know Shatner's stage experience, but like these all hit for people the way this person was arguing because they bring like the presence there, like they're playing to the rafters, even when they're, as we're discussing, underplaying.
2: I mean, like TV kind of is like big, big stage
0: plays. Yeah, especially in this era.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's one of the it's one of the interesting things that um, that comes out of the way that that uh, TV has kind of developed in the 60s and 50s. And there's a very interesting difference between the way that TV developed in, in the United States and the way that it developed in the United Kingdom, because in, in, in America, TV is an offshoot of film. Film was the big thing, cinema was the big thing, and, and TV was, was the junior cousin. And it was very much people who, uh, you know, you only moved in one direction. You know, TV was very much the small thing that grew out of cinema. Whereas in the United Kingdom, it, TV grew out of theater, it comes mm. from the theater tradition, which is why, uh, I mean, you, Kevin and I used to have this Doctor Who podcast, and, and Doctor Who is a perfect example of it. It's so theatrical. You know the the original show from the 60s 70s and 80s it's so theatrical because that's how tv was produced in the uk it was produced basically as if it was a theater production whereas in america tv was produced as if it was a cinematic production and you really see that with star trek because star trek is bright and bold and primary colored and it was pretty much the first big kind of sci-fi color series in America and it really leans into that mm-hmm. but it it but there's still that slight theatricality to it so people are still playing to the back rows and and that that sense that you need to fill not just a theater in the sense of uh, a stageway but a theater in the sense of the cinema still kind of permeates and and so everything is being thrown out big there're different types of theater but it's still playing to a theater. And so you get that big style of acting, but as television develops, and particularly this will be true uh, in the seventies, um, as uh, a cinema shifts, so TV will shift and follow it as well. Um, but that stops being the case and people stop playing to the back rafters. Um, and as the whole kind of new uh, sort of new wave of cinema comes through and, and influence from France and a whole bunch of other stuff and realism and method and all that stuff takes off, TV follows suit. So that big kind of performance kind of tamps down. Mm. Uh, but here you're still playing to the back rules. There's still that desire. Everybody in the picture house has to be able to hear what you say. <laughs> and that's that's what
0: Shatner is kind of channeling here.
2: We got to go back, I think. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I, I mean, I think the best TV really does balance the two of theater and film of like keeping itself bound within its limitations and like telling the sort of direct story of theater. While it can still like look very well, it can still use filmic techniques to mm-hmm. make it become interesting. And of course, like depends on the show is like a sliding scale here. But I think you can synthesize both sort of forms to create really like engaging television.
2: I mean like Breaking Bad is like a good variety of performances yeah. in that way. We're like I think like Bryan Cranton is an amazing actor, but he's playing to like the back rafters in a way that like totally mm-hmm. works for that show.
0: Yeah, in contrast, Jonathan Banks is yeah. underplaying almost every line. <laughs> yeah. I think Shatner
1: is really genuinely very interested in artifice as a method mm. of communication. Mm-hmm. Um this isn't something which is necessarily relevant for this. Uh, episode or conversation so it might be something that we'll return to uh, but i think he is i think he's a very intelligent man that isn't always capable of communicating that intelligence in the in a way that people find accessible hmm. um i think um kev you and i talked about star trek 5 the final frontier um well, quite a while back now on, on our other podcast, um, and it's generally rated as as sort of the worst of the the classic series uh, hmm. movies. I don't think it is, and I I don't think it is because I think it's I think it's really ambitious in what it's trying to do, but it's such a it, it's completely irreducible irreducible from Shatner's perspective, and he's I think he's genuinely interested in sort of interrogating things through artifice and through what is really a very kind of theatrical um, way. I think he's talked in the past about the way that he's been influenced by uh, Kabuki and things Mm, like that. And, mm. and and sort of cultures, which aren't necessarily what you would expect from an actor. Who's, you know, at this point done like the twilight zone and Mm -hmm. Star Trek and like, like Westerns and cop shows and stuff like that, you know Um, but he's very kind of influenced by, by alternative uh, sort of, Methods of acting and and uh, and staging, particularly really staging, and that's that's what comes across to a lot of Western audiences. That comes across as being very hammy, very stagey, and it often is. There's a very very thin line there as to how <laughs> how, how how successfully he is at doing that and his attempts to do it, um, and he doesn't always get that balance right. But I think that's what makes him such a fascinating kind of individual: is that it's very easy to see what he wants to achieve even if he sometimes really kind of manifestly falls short of being able to do that
2: it does like lead up to i mean have you have you seen uh like boston legal because that's a really interesting shatner performance too where he is like the character like literally breaks like the fourth wall throughout the show it's like interesting that i didn't know like that was like his whole background that actually like really plays into it
1: yeah, it's. It, I, I've seen a few episodes of it. I haven't. I haven't seen much of it, but it is exactly that. And it, again, it, it's it's playing up the artifice. It's breaking the fourth wall. It's it kind of deconstructing the. If that's not. If this isn't too pretentious, please stop me if it is.
2: Um, but
1: it, <laughs> it, 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 is uh, it might be too late now. It will come no, out. You're 100 right though. Um, but it is that way of like like deconstructing performance. It's deconstructing the way that um, now Star Trek isn't ready for that yet. It's it's not yeah. that sophisticated. Arguably, it never ever will be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, at least not in not in the classic show. You, you, you can make cases for later uh, iterations of the franchise. Well, it's even like Shatner's
2: that. whole persona is like he's parroting like what people think of Shatner. Oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. He's his own tribute act, absolutely.
2: Um, but
1: again, that's that's his. That seems to I that seems to be his way of, you know. Again, I'm trying to avoid the word interrogate, but like interrogating artifice, like the fact that he's playing a version of himself long before you have that as kind of like that modern thing where you get like uh, Matt LeBlanc playing a version of himself in in episodes and all that kind of stuff. He's like he's like 30 years ahead of his time, like playing his own cliche.
2: This predates uh, Batman, right? Uh, I think Adam West is like the next. Yeah, because like Adam West is like the next version of that.
1: Well, the uh, uh, Batman I think was sixty six, so it's contemporary. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. The, oh, that's the, interesting.
2: The, the overlap, yeah. Sure. But it, but it's
1: but it's very arch. It's very self self aware and self knowing. Yeah. So yeah,
2: yeah, the, yeah. That's interesting. Um, They're really like, going up at the exact same time.
0: Yeah, and that's uh, you're right. Shatner and West are like the two big big actors in the range of like theatrical for this one big genre performance, and then they have spend the rest of their careers pretty much playing themselves because mm-hmm. that's just they're like jg said at the best they're their own tribute act and I, I think to make an attempt to tie it back to the episode not that this hasn't been good discussion <laughs> but just i think there is a point here where it's the rest of the show just can't catch up to what shatner is doing or really the rest of the cast i think i mean we haven't really talked about nimoy because they have much to do this episode but i think nimoy um deforest kelly they also have very much awareness of wh- how to act and how to stage and how to what do what they do best but this episode just doesn't know how to use them that well. I think that's probably why they're backburnered for most of it. It's so caught up in this story that again, feels like from a different genre. Yeah. And the mechanics of the story, I think sort of overwhelm it. So you get this whole extended scene with just um, mud talking to his woman or Eve with the very loathsome minor (laughs) and like, it feels like we've almost lost the plot of the show, the strength mm-hmm. of the show, when you're just sort of having guest stars bounce off each other, and do various sort of plotty or non-successful comedic things.
2: Is the mud actor like I don't know who he is? Is he like a big deal? Well, was he a big deal for the time?
0: Yeah, not really. Oh, okay,
1: he's he's like he's a character actor. He he's sure. just uh, he's the sort of 1960s, hits hey, it's that
0: guy. Mm, sure sure yeah i'm pulling up roger c carmel's wikipedia page now and yeah he's just like a he's just a guest star in a lot of shows he okay. shows up on man from uncle the monsters sure. dick van yeah. dyke you know all the all the hits so yeah. yeah uh but no like main roles which is very interesting yeah um yeah that's a very respectable uh,
2: career yeah. field just being that oh, guy and the sure. character actor
1: for sure the, the cole Meanie of the 60s <laughs> yeah <laughs> um do do we do we want to talk about the ending of this episode i guess we have to yeah (laughs) i i feel we need to address it at at, at some point kev you you described it as horrific i think was your your adjective would you you care to expand on that (laughs) like
0: i said we have this scene with uh eve and the minor at childress um I just a quick aside. I love that the miners look very much like '60s dudes who are probably <laughs> like in their 30s and already have like balding hair. It's <laughs> because of between the war and smoking. Anyways, um, yeah, she's with this guy who's just oh god, he was literally 33. Uh, with this, wow, oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, I just looked it up. Born in 33. This is a '66 wow. episode television. Look, well, life was um, hard back then. <laughs> yeah. And it's like she cooks for him, and he's like, oh, it's not better than my cooking. And she's like, well, why don't you wash the dishes for once? It's so hacky, and it's it's a little bit funny because of that. Like, I was laughing to myself a little bit. It juries out, I guess, on how, whether that's beca- from episode intention or ironic. But then she has to live with the guy. We just sit with that. After all the protestations, I don't want to go there. This sucks. I hate my situation in life kirk goes ah you're beautiful along well here you go and they just don't <laughs> get her per- they, that they don't even get her perspective on how her life is going to change because of this something yeah. she was protesting beforehand is just careless really it's like yeah, not just like a sexist yeah i'm sorry yeah, it should have been not like a situation sexist, that
2: she like walked away from
0: right to finish my thought it's not just sexist it's just bad writing on its own yeah. terms well no absolutely and it's
1: such a it's such a weird... To, like, earlier on, you have she, you have that line about, um, well, you guys should have a raffle and I'll be the loser or whatever it is, which is just deeply peculiar. And then, yeah, she's just she's just left to this life of misery with this jerk um, who doesn't really sort of, uh, you know, I mean, clearly doesn't really seem like the sort of person who's going to... Uh, reform his sexist ways. I think it's probably fair to say, <laughs> and she's so reduced in her role. And this is where this is again a slightly broader point in terms of the context of the series. But this is where uh, you know uh, people talk about oh, you know, Star Trek was very progressive for the sixties and very, and like you know, it it absolutely was in some ways. But sometimes it kind of really can't live up to that expectation and this is one of the example that whole thing about you know um what kind of wife do you want one that can uh sew and cook and 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 uh or one that's like selfish and and vain and and whatever like as if those are the only two options available it's it's so it's just so reductive and and it's exactly the thing that ends up robbing the character of any kind of agency or any kind of like progressive or, or forward thinking kind of ways it's so stuck in the idea i mean you know it, obviously it's going to be heteronormative we're not expecting great right. inclusiveness when it comes to mm-hmm. 1960s fine you just have to accept that that's that you know it, that's that's how it was um, but like the idea like the only two options you could have for a wife is somebody that can cook her soul or someone that likes to look pretty by putting on makeup yeah. it's just so Patronizing, even yeah. even by nineteen sixty standards,
2: that's pretty rough. Yeah, it's very funny though. The match is like, oh yeah, like women should be like more confident so they can be more comfortable at home.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. It just doesn't it doesn't land at all. And it's it's one of those times that the show does need to be called out for, for very clearly falling short of its own its own standards.
0: Yeah, I mean, like like I said, even by the standards set by the previous episodes, we have when we had the discussion about miniskirts pro or con and anyway, i think we settled on somewhere in the middle it's just like i miniskirts on the ship to be specific in case you mm. didn't listen to our naked time episode or first episode. <laughs> anyways um but yeah it's a lot of these things can cut, go one way or the other can be interesting for the 60s and cut the wrong way for now this is just bad in any era it like I going back the same line it's just bad writing no matter how you look at it from a social moral perspective Mm -hmm. and we don't get her perspective. The fact that it runs counter to how she wanted earlier in the show. Yeah. It's just, it's just such a awful ending. She really doesn't
2: like have an arc at all. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. None none
1: of the women here are are graced with anything as, as, as helpful as an arc. Um, (laughs) And I I suppose, I suppose Eve saying, no, I don't want to be a sex worker is the closest that that we kind of get. Which you know, Good. She shouldn't be forced into sex work against her will. That's that's correct. But you know, it's 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 not really what you would call character development.
0: I I mean, it's and then you just have the other two women who are just like so vain and vapid, and then just disappear from the story. Apparently, they were married to the other two minors off screen, <laughs> and the other guy's like, "Oh, wait, now my buddies are married to these people who are <laughs> making their beauty," and then. We don't circle back to them. Do, are, do they even find the confidence in them all along? Or are they just going to live miserable lives? We'll never know.
1: And the script never cares.
0: <laughs> um, does, do we have a more positive note to end on before we wrap up this discussion? Or like this episode, should we just wallow in where uh, a very sour note? Uh, I, I'm okay
1: with ending on a sour note for this one. Okay. I think, I, it, it feels apropos.
0: Alright. Then Jay, do you want you to take us to recommendations?
1: Alright, fine. Thank you very much. Well, um this week I find myself um back at Apple TV. Apple TV is such a weird thing. I was so cynical about it when it was first launched. And yet they've just produced a raft of really interesting television. Far and far in excess of, of um what I'd kind of ever hoped for it. And they've had great shows like uh, Ted Lasso and Severance and all these kind of, and for Mankind, of course, uh, all these big hitters. Uh, but the show I'm going to recommend this week is, is called Shining Girls, um, which I don't really think has got the same kind of focus. Uh, it's an eight-episode eight um, sort of sci-fi thriller um, starring Elizabeth Moth uh, from uh, Handmaid's Tale. And um, it's about uh, her character, Kirby, uh, who works uh, in uh, an arch. She's an archivist for, for a newspaper. Um, she was attacked uh, and uh, left for dead uh, prior to the series, uh, but survived. And her attacker was uh, never captured, never found. Um, she's struggling to kind of deal with that. But at the same time, uh, she's kind of getting caught up in, a, in, in the investigation into who her attacker was um but she's also um seems to be almost losing her grip in reality she's she's uh one one time she's uh she's blonde next time she's brunette uh she puts down a coffee mug that looks like a you know an owl she picks one up which is just brown there's there's little slips in reality um and it's not clear whether it's a problem with her or with her mind whether there's something a little bit more sci-fi going on clue there's something a little more sci-fi going on um and it's Mm -hmm. kind of um i kind of don't want to go into too much more detail because part of the joy of the series is just kind of experiencing it it's very um disconcerting it's very discombobulating and um but it's a show that you really kind of need to pay attention to Uh, a lot of the the great qualities of the show or in the details or in the margins um so it's a show um almost a little bit like fringe in some ways it's not like fringe um but but just that idea that it's 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 the little things it's the small details that you pay attention to that can really make a difference to how you perceive something there's a little bit of uh russian doll in there as well Mm. um so uh it's just this it's it's a really fantastic little show it's got a stacked cast as well there's some really uh great performances in it jamie bell is in it uh wagner mura as uh dan velisky's is fantastic as well uh he's basically the number two uh in the show it's just this really great thing it's not fast moving in fact it's extremely considered in its pacing but that's very much it's, it's very much kind of like still waters run deep sort of show and i just adore it it's another example of apple tv just producing a show which isn't getting a lot i don't think a lot of hype maybe maybe you guys are, are know differently maybe it's being uh, pushed harder in america i don't know um but it's not getting a lot of hype it doesn't seem to be getting a lot of kind of uh like awards buzz or anything like about that but it's just such a good example of what it is so that's uh shining girls on uh apple tv that's that's my
0: recommendation i mean i heard of it because i do love elizabeth moss and yeah apple seems to have this weird problem where it's like they produce so much if not quality at least interesting tv though a lot of it happens to be quality and yeah it's they sort of just like throw it on there and just to see what sticks. But I very few shows get the full promotional push. And they just sort of let the quality speak for themselves, which I mean, they seem less like Craven than Netflix. It's not like the Netflix model of we dump it in a week and it's forgotten in a week at least. So that's good. But it's definitely this sort of thing where you wish, like the these Apple shows, you don't really hear them until like the third or fourth season. And it's like, oh, wow, this has gotten really good, which I guess is better again. But you still almost wish that, you know, there'd be some promotion around this. It's really just like Ted
2: Lasso, like Severance, that got the big push, right?
0: Yeah. And then now For All Mankind's getting sort of the underground. um, Okay. Like I see everyone talking about Twitter, but maybe it's just because I curate my friends well and push everyone I meet. But anyways, (laughs) um, yeah, yeah, you're right. For For All Mankind isn't even promoted by Apple. Like they will pick and choose their shows to give the big push. But at least they're also not too cruel to those shows. They don't give a big push to it. I'll still let them grow and see if they can find their audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a network I really love right now for a lot of reasons I just discussed. But it is interesting how some of these things fall through the cracks.
1: Yeah, I think this is definitely one of the shows that has done that. And, and there's a few kind of like really low profile shows on Apple TV. There's a Korean show called Dr. Brain, uh, which I absolutely adore. I really love it. I'm kind of a big fan of Korean TV anyway, but I loved it. And it's just kind of there. I thought, as far as I know, it's not, I think it's definitely the first Korean show that Apple TV have produced, but it's not, um, as far as I know, promoted in any way or given any kind of focus and attention, but I absolutely loved it. I thought it was such a just a cracking little show. And and sometimes it's nice to be able to have like a, a streaming service where you can just kind of explore the nooks and crannies and it's not all about like like you say kev it's not all about like the big high profile pushes or the you know funnily enough stranger things started that way it was a small little underground hit that nobody really thought would go anywhere now it's utterly inescapable and and beyond insane but um sometimes yeah sometimes these things blow up but yeah it's 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 interesting to see that you don't have to just chase that netflix model apple tv have kind of become a success by not chasing that model, it's it's really interesting.
0: It's very old school HBO in that way, almost, mm. where it's like we'll just throw anything out there and yeah. see what sticks, <laughs> which I like, yeah, a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's how you got, that's how you get the Sopranos and the Wire. So you gotta kind of like that format,
1: absolutely. Uh, um, yeah. yeah. So, um, what, uh, what have you got for us this week, Kev?
0: uh let's see i was going to recommend the latest jordan peele film nope a very timely recommendation at recording that in the couple months you'll probably find it on streaming though and i highly recommend you do it's if you haven't checked it out already it's just such a good movie i walked out of it feeling i mean loving it still but like wondering about some things having some nits to pick and like those they sort of became like scabs. I couldn't stop itching. And the more I dug into them, oh, digging into a scab, I should pull out this metaphor really quick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the more I dug into different aspects, the more I talked about other people, there's so much going on with this movie. Um, I mean, yeah, given that this is a backlog, I think I can go into a little more detail what it's about. Basically, uh, Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer are siblings who run a failing uh, Hollywood horse ranch, like horses who... Perform in like uh, filmic productions, commercials, and movies and things like that. And they see a UFO, they come across one and decide to start trying to investigate, film it, and get sort of the perfect shot of it in order to make their money back. Uh, Another prominent character is Steven Yoon as the lead, uh, sort of the head of this theme park based off a role he had as a kid in a movie once and i don't think i want to say more than that that's already a lot more than the trailers would give you it's such an interesting movie it has a lot to say about filmmaking it has a lot to say about like trauma we keep with us that seems like everything's about these days but nope has actually interesting to say about that i swear it's um Yeah, it's just such a fascinating movie. Like The more I think about it, the more different themes unlock for me, the more different character moments unlock for me. Kaluuya, Palmer, and Yoon are all giving knockout performances, like some of the best of each of their respective careers. I think Kiki Palmer, who I haven't seen much in, I know of her child actor past and all, but she is the standout for me. She is incredible, and if she doesn't have a massive career after this movie, then that's a failure of Hollywood. She's just such a live wire but then kaluuya with the exact opposite energy of like the very stoic back to westerns kind of a john wayne leading man kind of guy just mm-hmm. or maybe clint eastwood more is accurate very very soft spoken but very effective um Yun's always just like the coolest guy in the world and anything he's in i love him so much and he does such a good job i know he's your guy chow it's, oh it's yeah so- i love uh, yeah, he, he's my point. guy too he's my guy too yeah yeah i, I mean, obviously he, love
2: Cleo also I mean, everyone in the movie is fantastic
0: yeah I, I guess i meant more like we we all love Stephen you and all these people i guess i meant the character is your guy oh you know, sh- like oh me. yeah
2: he's probably he's, he's kind of me
0: <laughs> yeah um so yeah a million oh and brendan peria Pereira, i have to shut i wish i never pronounced that name i should have looked that up but uh he's from the oa my beloved oa and he has such a big role in nope as well that kind of just came out as sort of he's kind of the third lead because Stephen yoon's more of the uh a very different kind of role i should say he's also incredible uh say so great performances has a lot to say and the effects are incredible like the it's filmmaking like fun is incredible movie it's really fun day. yeah it's there are sequences that are jaw-dropping and you you see so many influence of Peel just very out in the open. Influences they don't even want to talk about because they might lead you in some different directions. But it, it manages to synthesize a lot of different genres at once, especially at the end. And it's incredible. I highly recommend Nope. After more thought, I think it's my favorite of the three films Peel has done. And that's a tall order. I love Get Out and Us. So yeah, I highly recommend you check out Nope, which by the time you hear, it will hopefully be available to watch somewhere. And then uh, Chow, what do you have to recommend?
2: Uh, I'm going to recommend a uh, big movie about a little guy you might have heard of uh, (laughs) named Elvis. Uh, I'm not even like a huge like Baz Luhrmann fan. So I went into the movie like fairly skeptical. But like, it's just like such a wild ride of a film. Uh, It's got like a great star performance from uh, Austin Butler. And Mm -hmm. also like one of the weirdest Tom Hanks performances that I think like, I think it like really works for the movie and uh what the the trailers are kind of hiding is that
0: he's kind of the lead of the movie (laughs) yeah and it's all like through his eyes i was just saying tom hanks is playing his seventh cloud atlas character (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like
2: so fun to see like tom hanks in like character actor mode which we don't get enough of and i hope this kind of like starts a whole new like era of his career um it's like just such a like rip roaring ride uh it's very bombastic. It's uh does what I think a lot of like biopics should do, which is kind of lean into the myth of Elvis and is like not, it doesn't really care too much about accuracy. It's just about like who we see that man as and like how we're grappling with it. It's a really fun movie.
0: Yeah, I also saw it. Also love it. It's, I mean, I'm really hot and cold on Boz in that I've seen two of his other movies and I love Romeo plus Juliet and I hate Moulin Rouge. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Elvis is such a good time. And yeah, I think that should also hopefully be streaming by the time this comes out. Mm-hmm.
1: Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, I think we can probably move towards wrapping the episode up for there. But before we go, uh, Chow, would you care to uh, plug anything? Is there anything you want to tell us about?
2: Uh, I make like cartoons sometimes, but I-, I usually just post it on my Twitter. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at um, at Sriracha Chow, S-R-I-R-A-C-H-A-C-H-A-U or you can just look for Mr. Chow. That's what I go by as on there. Uh, yeah, uh, follow me there.
0: Yeah, and yeah, I'll also at you of course when I post oh, the sure. episode. So if yeah, if you have trouble finding that, uh, so yeah, and then you can find talking trek to you uh, at talk trek to you on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at kev koser k e v k o e s e r, and then I also frequently guest on Rowan Kaiser's action movie podcast Total Massacre, uh, and you can find JG's writings at jgmcquarry dot I e dot Scott. Oh, i stumbled over that, that time and uh, <laughs> jg's other podcast is beatles stuffology where uh, he and his co-host andrew Deakin discuss the beatles song by song fantastic thank you very much and Chap, yeah, thank you very
1: much for joining us for this episode yeah thanks for having me this is a lot of fun you're more than welcome it's been an absolute blast and i think we can probably wrap things up for there next week we are going to be covering what are little girls made of um, that's going to be an interesting discussion especially in light of this story's greatly mature and developed uh, approach to sexism <laughs> but of course we hope you're very much going to join us for it but until then keep talking